Welcome to Career in Ruins, where this week we're trying something new. Hello, hey, hey, how are you doing? Not too bad. Good, good. Um, question? Yep. Who's this guy? This guy? You mean there's someone else in the booth? <laughs> Who's this guy? Who are you? <laughs> uh, well, my name is Britt. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, I'll just do a uh, register. Andy? Present. Oh, hi, Andy. <laughs> Andy. Yeah. Is that Bournemouth University's Dr. Andrew Brown? It is. Wow. It is. Andy, yeah. welcome to Career in Ruins. Thank you very much. Um, about time. Yeah, about, so yeah, apologies for that. All, <laughs> all these false um, promises to have you on the show. Um, mm -hmm. And welcome to our first attempt at something different. Yeah, so as our regular listeners will know, we, um, we, we've got a bit of a format where we roam off around the world, I don't know, Easter Island, Rapa Nui or somewhere, mm. do an interview. Can I tell you? One -on -one. Have, been you been, to have you been to Cook the, Islands? Have you? Yeah. Um, where we will go off and do an interview one-on-one -on -one, and then Lawrence and I will come back and listen to it and chat about it. But this week we've got an opportunity to all be together for the first time, so we thought we'd squeeze Andy into our, our little booth and have a chat. That's it. How you doing, Andy? All right? You had a good week? You had a good week, mate. Yep. Yeah. Um, can't grizzle. Good. Can't grizzle. Um, hot. It's been hot. It's been a very hot week. Well, that, lots of rain. that might date it, though, won't it? That's okay. That's okay. Well, I think we've moaned about the heat. Yeah. For the last three episodes. So, <laughs> yeah. It's been yeah. any one time. In so, if anyone's listening in winter, we're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where have you been? <laughs> you should have been listening back in yeah. whenever. Insert yeah. date. Yeah. yeah. Like and subscribe. What are you up to? <laughs> So, uh, so we're going to stick to a relatively normal format in yep. that um, what we're going to do, we're going to have a quick chat now about what's on our mind and Andy's going to chime in. Uh, then we're going to do Monu Trumps Yee. and Andy's got his own card to add to the uh, pile this week. Excellent. A three-way game of Monu Trumps. That can only end well. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to give Andy an interview. So um, let's, let's go for it. Derek, what's been on your mind this oh, week? Distance. Week? I've been thinking about distance. Right. I was... As you know, I, at work, I work incredibly hard and I sit at my desk and I do nothing but grant writing, lecture writing. And I don't think you've mentioned that that I, many times. I, I, what, I, what I certainly don't do is procrastinate <laughs> right. and look on Twitter or go on random websites. But if I did, this week I would have come across a website called Orbis. Orbis. Which is the Stanford something something network something. But in layman's terms, it's Google Earth for the Roman world. Ah, so you can explore yeah. Roman routeways, how long it would take to get from A to B. If you were a Roman, if you were a rich Roman, you can um, spend lots of denarius and get boats and transport. Or you can, if you're a bit poorer, you can go on a donkey or even on foot. And it calculates the distance between sites, how much it would cost you, what's the most efficient way of getting there, what's the, most, what's the cheapest way of getting there. So it gives a nice sense of distances in the past, oh, nice. which I quite like. Um, and I, I commute quite a way to work every morning and I spend quite a lot of time thinking about distances. Okay. And it kind of put it in perspective, actually, I don't have to go very far, no. I can get here quite quickly. And indeed, the first thing I searched for, and you can see it on, on my Twitter, is how long it would take to get from here to my field work, which is near a, a, an old Roman town, so the town itself, uh, Larissa, is marked on there, so I could calculate that it would take me about, oh, I think it was about a month to get to fieldwork, so I had to start now. That sounds good. Um, does it offer up other modes of transport as well? You can have boat, you can have donkey, you can have cart, you can have a range of things. Okay, nice, nice. Where, where would I want to find out? I'm gonna go on that website later. I'm trying to think. We should tweet a link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Send us your best uh, best discoveries. Oh, best journeys, best, best journeys. Roman journeys. Yeah, we'll yeah, cover yeah. In future episodes. We should we should, uh, <laughs> we should put in our sites from Monu Trumps yes. later on <gasps> to see how much Roman Monu Trumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sequel. That sounds good. <laughs> how about you? What have you been up to? Um, so I have been looking at Twitter this week a bit, and I was looking at Joe Flatman's uh, work that he's been sharing out around. Um, around archaeofashion. The message from this is you and I spend too much time on Twitter. <laughs> no. <laughs> we need our spare time. Um, and so he he's started this hashtag where he's identified old historic photographs of people doing archaeological excavation and looking at what people wear. And um, having visited you and Andy in your field school more recently, I know you guys have got a, a particular style of fashion that you like to wear. You know? And it got me thinking about how... What does he mean by that? Vests? I don't know. <laughs> Vests short, short shorts. shorts. <laughs> no, don't, don't 
feign ignorance on your excavation <laughs> fashion. Well, I just I would I didn't think that Derek and I had a, like a a fashion that was similar. Oh, well, I suppose we both like vests. You both do. You're, you're very vesty. Derek certainly, and I know you feel yeah. like you're vesty. But and we I think we both like a. A well-fitting shorts. Yeah, and Harry, to that point. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. also this year you were adopting cap baseball caps. Yeah, um, yeah, I've been creeping into the world of baseball caps. Yeah. And me, I had my scummy old You did, cap. you had your... I think I like my shorts a bit shorter than Derek and Harry. Yeah, you do. I can, <laughs> looking at you now, I can I can see you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great because these photos, the photos that Joe puts up are really quite engaging. And they're all black and white. And it's that time when no one smiled when they took photographs. Mm. And I'd love to see, as the years have gone by... And in, as archaeology has developed as a profession, how the archaeological fashion <laughs> has changed. The 1980s, for example, would be really yeah, interesting, yeah. grainy photos and um, but in colour and a lot of very baggy anoraks, I suspect. It's funny because it's something we insist upon on the last day of Greece every year. We take a, a team photo and we always do the normal happy, smiley one, but we have to do one where we're all looking very dour and serious. <laughs> and I'd love to one day do that in, in full period costume as well. <laughs> <laughs> well that would be hot. Yes. <laughs> and it did make me laugh as well that whenever I'm doing field work, I'll just wear the most ran down, baggy, rubbish clothes I've got going. I tend to not make an effort. But you look back at these old photos and they're all, it's almost like they're in their Sunday bests. They've got lovely well-ironed shirts and um, waistcoats and lovely trousers and smart shoes. You're saying we don't make enough of an effort. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> also, they, those people probably weren't doing the work, were they? That's, good that's true. That's true. So we need to well, they just bring back I guess a bit work. like you guys as well. They were just hamming up photos <laughs> to make it look like they were working. And then when the camera's gone, they just get out of the trench and make the students do the work. I, I, yeah. I can't tar Andy with that brush, but that is certainly described my field season. <laughs> a camera comes out and I leave the hut and join the trench. <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't do any work. I just I just ran around answering questions most of the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is a, a chorus of your name, the field school, isn't it? Andy, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's good. They were a good group this year, so it's, it was all right. <sighs> nice. So what have you been thinking about, Andy? What's on your mind? Mate, I, compared to you two, I'm an empty vessel. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know, I just, I, uh, I, I genuinely don't have, <laughs> sounds awful, I just genuinely can't think of anything that's kind of intriguing or in my life at the moment. Are you saying um, you didn't spend two minutes before recording frantically trying to think up something to talk about? <laughs> no, I didn't. Do you know, I was, I was reading it before I came up, I was reading some, some, um, some notes that a guy wrote from the 1950s and I've been this week I've been looking at a whole lot of sites from New Zealand from the early period and trying to track down where they are and all that sort of stuff and it's really interesting just the amount of stuff that's gone already you know and I think that's probably the only thing I've been thinking about lately. It's <laughs> gone as in destroyed just, and lost. Yeah just lost you know it's just through natural processes human processes all that sort of stuff you know it's it's not really interesting obviously it's a given but when you when you actually look into it, it's kind of scary. You sort of know that's happening in the background, but when you look into it and start realising how many things people have seen over the last hundred years or whatever that just aren't there anymore, mm. you realise how incomplete the record is. Mm. And, yeah. and that, uh, I guess the rate of development in those last 70 years as well is monumental. Yeah, yeah but, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But no, that's, that's a very small scale thing compared to... What people know, wear. Archaeology fashion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's skirt over that and dive straight into monutrumps. All right, so how, so, do, how do we do monutrumps with three people? Well, Is we it? gave Andy a heads up. Yep. But, and so rather than using the ones that have been submitted to us on Twitter, which are the ones we have to pick from, yeah, yeah. Andy's allowed to put forward his own monutrump. So we gave him the brief that it has to be an uh, overlooked monument that he feels doesn't get the recognition it's deserved. Um, and... I think we just jump in. Fantastic, so, all right. Uh, Derek, do you want to hit us with your monutrump? I do, I do. One moment, please. You mean you don't know the information? Off the yeah, what? I, I'm just using my mind palace to recall the correct information. Right. <laughs> Which is definitely not my iPhone in front of me. So mine is the Sanctuary of Artemis Orthea. Uh, near to Sparta in Greece. I thought you were about to say Optimus Prime. <laughs> I kind of want to now. <laughs> and it's a it's an archaic site. It's um, devoted in classical times to Artemis, and it's one of the most important religious sites in the Greek city-state of Sparta. And it was used for quite a significant period of time, um, from 
an early period to um, the fourth century CE, um, so a significant time frame. But I don't want to give away too many figures before we start playing the game. Fair enough. And that, that was sent in by In Search of Artemis on Twitter. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I feel like there might be a bit of a conflict of interest <laughs> there in the, uh, in the tweeting, but we'll, we'll roll with it. Because, yeah. Hey, it's a Greek site, and I, I love a Greek site. You do love a Greek site. Andy, as, as a guest, you're more than welcome to go next. Tell us about your, uh, your one you trump. Okay, I feel, I feel unprepared because I didn't know. So what, can you explain the game? <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever play Top Trumps as a kid? No. Oh, you, do you know what Top Trumps are? No. Okay. So Top Trumps is you, you receive a. Might pack. not have got to New Zealand. <laughs> Here's a long. It's way. a pack of cards, yeah. and traditionally it would be like sports cards or football players oh, yeah, or yeah. Um, other things that children yeah, like. Yeah. Uh, Disney characters, and then they have three or four categories um, that they assign a arbitrary number to that in that when it's it comes like to their engine strength. Engine power, yeah. top so, speed. Yeah, ability kind of to score a free kick or a penalty taking or yeah, yeah, yeah things like that. And you, you pick your card and you, you try and use your strongest attribute that you can think would beat theirs. So if you've got a particularly fast car, you might go top speed. Right. Or if you've got a particularly powerful but slow car, you might go for the engine okay. power okay. in the hope that it beats Lawrence's. Oh, uh, right, okay. So I, I have one from mm -hmm. New Zealand. But there's also another one that I didn't tell you about. Oh, mystery. I thought, I, thought, I thought, you two are professional podcasters now. You need to be able to deal with curveballs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. On it, on I it. feel like part of my role in life is to develop you two. <laughs> so, <laughs> Someone's got, got to. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, okay, so I've got, I've got two. The first is a site called, um, actually the first is two sites. I've actually got okay. three. Wow. So this, these are the two that I haven't told you about. Yeah, bring it in. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. But I thought this was more about, you know, talking about the sites as in why they were under undervalued. Absolutely is. This is why it's good having the expert on to play money trumps because we're just doing the research based on what someone sent us. Oh, uh, I see. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my first site is a site called Tanuta Otomanu. Uh, and my second site is a site called Camp Waihee. And they're intrinsically linked. Yeah. Both of them were within, I don't know, 10 miles of where I grew up um, in the North Island of New Zealand in a place called Taranaki. Tunutu, Otamanu, was the um, kind of operational base for a little bit of time. They were late 19th century sites, um, so colonial period sites in New Zealand. Tunutu Otamanu was the kind of operational centre for a Māori leader called Rifa Titokawaru. And Titokawaru, uh, obviously the kind of background to this is colonialism's happening in New Zealand at this time. The Treaty of Waitangi signed in 1840, which kind of is ostensibly an agreement between Māori and Europeans. Um, but by the kind of 1860s, some liberties have been taken, shall we say, by the, by the Europeans, and there's tensions rising, and there's been tension really since the 1840s. And so Tito Kawaru starts out as this very peaceful figure, but by the 1860s has become more of a resi resistance leader, and his base is at Tanutu. And as I say, Tanutu is his, his base, uh, and he's he's got this. One of the interesting things about him is he's he's uh, he's able to use propaganda to his benefit. So he talks, will use his letters and things, and talks about cannibalism, and basically put the shits up um, all the people down, all the Europeans, all the way down to Wellington who are very worried about him. And he's got this great line at the end of one of his letters: "I shall not die. I shall not die. When death itself is dead, I shall be alive." Which I think is pretty <laughs> nice. Awesome. Um, so he's, he uses him, he uses this this kind of propaganda to bait the Europeans to come to Tanutu, and um, because the Māori work out, they they can't fight the Europeans in the open field, so they've got to work out a time and a place of their choosing. And he baits the European commander, and that that guy is based at Camp Waihee, which is just down the road from the farm where I grew up. Um, and so, yeah, the Europeans go out from Camp Waihee, they attack Tanutu, the second battle anyway, and they get routed by this quite like, numerically weaker Māori force. And that starts off a kind of recolonisation almost by Māori of a large tract of land mm. in the South Island. So it's really, they're really important sites historically. You go there now, there's nothing there. One's this kind of um, got a historical reserve, but there's not much there. The other one is at a paddock. And there's a little cairn that's about a foot foot high, but it's overgrown with grass. Mm. So they're called the two sites that are pretty cool. And then the the other one that I told you about <laughs> is the Papamore Hills Regional Park. So most of New Zealand history takes place between, um, say, 1300 AD, so 700 years ago, and then up to when Europeans arrive. So 
um, in the later part of that, from about 1500 AD on, um, Māori start building fort fortifications on a big scale. And Papamoa is this beautiful site, a uh, set of hills overlooking quite flat land around the edges, right next to the coast. And uh, it's got about, I don't know, seven or eight beautiful big par sites on them, or fortification sites. So think kind of Maiden Castle, mm. but much more sinuous than okay. Iron Age hill forts. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a really cool landscape. Last time I was there, people were up there talking about the amazing uh, natural landscape around it. <laughs> And I was furious. <laughs> they weren't recognising the importance of this cultural landscape. So they're my two, oh, nice. three sites. No, Fantastic trump cards. Yeah, they are yeah. good trump yeah. cards. Uh, I'm feeling a bit inadequate now with mine, but it's still a good one. Yeah, but, what's yours? Um, mine's, mine's one that's been um, um, suggested by Francis McIntosh on Twitter. And um, it's Corbridge Roman Town and Museum. And this is a, um, a Roman settlement up in the north of England. Um, so it's, it's about 2.5 miles south of Hadrian's Wall. Um, so up in the north of England. Up in the north of England, as I said. Um, <laughs> and it's the, the level of pres preservation is just fantastic. Um, and there's a lovely museum there. And it dates from around 80 AD, just, just upwards of 80 AD. And, um, it's just got everything there. It's fully intact. And when, or if you think about its location in terms of Hadrian's Wall and all these amazing um, towns and forts that are preserved yeah. along the wall and the wall itself, they're all quite big attractions and they're very popular for tourists and things like that. Whereas this one's just a little bit overlooked and okay. not quite appreciated for, for how good its level of preservation and records and the level of excavation that's taken there to reveal it all up is, is fantastic. And a really good museum. Mm. With all the is there a car park? There's a car park. Well, I, oh. don't, I don't know how I spoil the <laughs> but On that note, I think we should move into top trumps. All right, all right. Monu trumps. Monu trumps. Let's Here do we this. go. So, first out, um, we're going to go with age. All right. Okay. So, in number of years of age, what have you got? 2,500. Oh, I've only got 1,935. So, I'm only about 500. Oh, <laughs> that's a <laughs> <laughs> Oh, does that mean I get to go next? You get to choose the next category. Um, all right. I'm going to go for distance from Stonehenge. Okay. I fear I'm going to lose this one. <laughs> I'll go first. It's not a strong round for you. <laughs> uh, 342 miles, which I think on any other day would be a winner. Uh, 2,184 <sighs> miles. Oh, I think Andy. I'm 11,000 <laughs> oh, It's a win for New Zealand, unlike right. the cricket. Oh. <laughs> netball, mate. Did you see netball? <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm <laughs> <laughs> <What>? serious. <laughs> netball, yeah, we, yeah. we both won the cricket, really. It was a. Uh, it was close. It was yeah. Close. How is that true for you've got? Oh. 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 Anyway, sorry. Anyway, moving, moving on. on. Andy, moving on. you get to go first. Yeah, really, cool. Yeah. So the access. We're left with access. Oh yeah, left with access. Yeah. So my one is I've got a car park down the bottom. Uh, I'm am just going to do Papa Moore. Car park down the bottom, but it's a bit of a walk up to the hills, 250 meters high. So Oof. I'm going to give it a solid 90. 90. Okay. 90 out of 100 for access. I'm going to go 90. Eight because it's got um, a car park right on its doorstep, and it, you can come straight off the uh, dual carriageway onto the uh, into the area. Really good access. Um, only downside is you, there's people pay for entrance, but I mean to help keep the museum going and, and whatnot. I, that's that's a minor price to pay. Uh, with mine, I suspect it's quite accessible, but the internet isn't helping me find how accessible it is. So I'm going to go for a lower score of around 70 because there's no easy guide to find it. Ah. So I would say as a, as a traveller, as a visitor, it's quite inaccessible because I have no idea of how to get to that car park, if there is indeed a car park. Okay. But I suspect there is. So it's, the, it's a win for the Roman town on that one. I think you've just about got it, yeah. So we call it a draw? Ish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm draw, but I get the trophy this time. Uh, <laughs> now we've got to go into a uh, final uh, innings, super innings, super over, a super, super over. round of trumps. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, well, should we go into the interview? Yeah. This is one yep. of my favourite interviews so far. So, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> do, do we even edit in a theme tune here? I don't know. <laughs> I think we. <laughs> um, 
Andy, welcome to Career and Ruins, officially. Thank you for yeah. uh, um, you. amusing us for, uh, <laughs> with uh, Monu Trumps and what's on your mind and just making our ramblings sound even more useless. <laughs> yeah. um, Putting some perspective on our uh, ability as podcasters. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sure you're an avid listener, so I probably don't need to explain this to you, but um, the podcast, we tend to ask people to ask a bit about themselves and then we have three set questions that that we'll ask you after that. But if you could give us an overview of your career in ruins and how you got to where you are today, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I can, I think. Um, I don't sh- I, I, I'm not sure how I got into archaeology. If that's kind of, I guess that's the Ooh. starting point, is it? But we get, and I should know, because that's one of the, like, the big questions you get asked, isn't it? You kind of get asked. Yeah. What got you into archaeology? Have you got yeah. a story you tell people when they ask that, even though it may not be true? No, I haven't. I sort of go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I should come up with a better. It's been years. I should give you know. yourself an origin myth. Yeah. It's nice not to hear, well, I opened the prospectus and it was first. Let I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I tried architecture, but it didn't quite work out. Um, no, I, I don't know. I've got no idea. And I, I, always, I always think it's funny when people ask that because they ask it, they normally ask, you know, have you found any gold yet or dinosaur bones or something? Mm. And then they kind of, you know, it's a couple of minutes into the conversation, they say, well, what got you into it? And you can see this kind of quizzical look on mm. their face, like, they grew out of it, and you didn't, and they're, <laughs> yeah. confused, they're sort of confused about that, which is fair enough. Um, so I don't know how I got into it, but I think once I, once I kind of decided to do it, um, probably my career's been pretty conventional in some ways mm-hmm. for an academic, so I went straight from high school. We don't have A-levels or anything like that in archaeology, so I went straight from high school to University of Otago, so I'm from the North Island of New Zealand, a place called Taranaki, um, and went down to the University of Otago, which is right at the bottom of New Zealand's South Island, and studied, uh, we, it's a weird sort of hybridised system in New Zealand, it's a little bit like the British system, a little bit like the American system, so we don't do archaeology, we do, you study anthropology, which mm. has got, you know, the different components, you know, um, archaeology, of biological anthropology, anthropology, all that sort of thing. So my first degree was in anthropology, and I actually did a double degree with zoology as well. Okay. Uh, zoology was my backup. Mm. I thought, oh yeah, if I can't get a job in archaeology, I'll definitely get one in zoology. So what got you into zoology? I've no idea. Grew up with cows. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I always think that's. I always sort of think, looking back on that, I think it's such a weird. Most people would have like a backup, like law or something that's going to get them more money. Mm. Mine was zoology, so it tells you something about it. Um, <laughs> you followed your passion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I did that for a bit, and I was kind of I, like, pretty much, I think probably the same as you guys in a way, not to cast dispersions on you, but um, <laughs> a bit of a mid-packer, I mm. would say. like Not like the most amazing student by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was pretty of an in-betweener. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I was, a, I don't know, I was a bit, probably a bit lazy. Um, but I managed somehow to get into honours, uh, in, arch- in archaeology or in mm. anthropology, so we do three years of undergraduate degree, and then you get a you get into honours, uh, which is a sort of taught year plus dissertation of twenty thousand words. Um, so I did that, and if I continued with zoology, it would have been another year on top mm. of it, just because of the way it worked. So I cross credited my science points across and just went with archaeology, um, and that was so that that honours year was probably, I think probably looking back on it was probably a turning point for me because prior to that um, we'd just been learning about abstract kind of things, you know, distant cultures and all that sort of stuff. And I was interested in it, but I probably wasn't that connected to it. But in field, in, um, in the fourth year, a couple of things happened. We did field work for the first time and it's delayed in New Zealand because because you aren't doing archaeology from the get-go. Mm. They wait until you're kind of, they've got the diehards in the fourth year okay. and then they take them out to the field. So by that, by that point, um, as I say, I'd, I'd sat through three years of lectures and, and done all right, but not great. But the field thing just changed the way I looked at archaeology, I think, because I was able to do the field work pretty easily. I was from a farm. I was used to using mm. tools. So that wasn't a problem. And I just really liked it. It just connected me with archaeology way more. than. So was that the point you kind of saw, OK, I, I want to be an archaeologist now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also it was a point, I think, where... Um, a lot of the other stuff made sense mm. and it kind of hadn't before and now I look back on it I understand about different learning pathways mm. and all that sort of stuff that you kind of you learn later um, 
and I just wasn't a person that was ever going to be was ever going to do as well when it was kind of a, a sort of more abstract type thing. Yeah. So that was one thing, and then the second thing is a kind of no, maybe it's a wee bit cliched, but I think that year I sort of found my tribe mm. in a way. To that point, I'd been kind of floating around um, uni a bit and and had some really good mates who I'm still friends with, but the archaeology bunch were just a different level. Yeah. And um, across the board, but I had a really good fourth year cohort, and we were really tight. A lot of really clever people who are st- most mostly still in archaeology, um, and they were just we all worked together really really well, and they they as I say were really driven and, and good um, tight cohort. So I'm married to one of them. <laughs> uh, so really tight. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm my best friend from home is married to one of my really good friends from that year and stuff like that. So it's a wee bit maybe a wee bit incestuous, but it's um it was really good. And so that those two things I think just changed it for me, and that's when it kind of took off. Mm. And I was all right at field work. As I say, I was kind of, I was happy in the field. So I managed to get a few gigs on the side during my fourth year doing a bit of field work surveys and stuff and got on as many digs as I could. And that exposed me to a whole lot of other people. So your network just gets bigger and bigger. And um, there was a, there was a uh, research group who were doing a lot of work on early New Zealand sites. And I sort of got in with them, I suppose, and, and got on a lot of the digs that they were doing. And, and that just, as I say, just helped the enthusiasm and so I ended up doing a little bit of work for them as an RA after my honours year um, and then went into my master's at Otago, which was looking at material culture stuff in, in southern New Zealand. Uh, and again, just did the same stuff in the background, uh, field work and all that sort of thing. Um, but I suppose I started thinking about material culture and I was a little bit dissatisfied with how we were thinking about it in New Zealand. Term, uh, in New Zealand. So I started looking for other ways and... Um, happened upon this book by Stephen Sheenan called Genes, Needs and Human History, which yeah. introduced this kind of Darwinian approach to archaeology, which resonated and had, weirdly, had some components really from zoology. Um, a lot of like behavioural ecology stuff is really taken from from that, that sphere. So a lot of kind of bits that, I, you know, that I guess to that point I hadn't really thought lined up, actually mm. lined up with that kind of idea of, or those, those ideas. And so... I tried my best with that, with my masters, and I did okay. But um, but it was just obvious that I wasn't, you know, didn't really know the theory as well as I could have. And I thought, well, maybe just go to the source. Mm. So, like, you only have to be when you're sending emails, you only have to be brave for three seconds when you push send. Yeah. So I sent an email to Stephen and said, look, would you be interested in supervising a PhD? And strangely, he said yes. Um, <laughs> and so. Um, that's what I, took you to UCL. Yeah, yeah. so that's, that was the big move. So um, that was sort of an oh shit moment. So I thought, man, I've, okay, I've got in here and I got a scholarship to cover my fees and all that. And um, that was really good. And uh, But I didn't have a lot of money. <clears throat> and mum and dad said, oh, look, we'll, we'll help you out as much as we can. But I thought, well, okay, I've, I've got to get a bit some cash here. So I, um, a friend of mine was working in Australia. Mm. So and they were they were that was I don't know when the big boom was on with the China and wanting wanting um, steel and all that sort of stuff. So I went out to Western Australia, a place called Newman, um, which is in the middle of nowhere, you know, in, in Western Australia, uh, in the Pilbara, um, and uh, basically just worked as an archaeologist out there for six months, doing fly in fly out work from New Zealand, and um, it was really cool. It was just completely different working with the traditional communities out there, the Aboriginal communities, they were always with us when we were doing our surveys mm. and just completely different environment, you know, mm. uh, different archaeology. Because whilst New Zealand and Australia are close geographically, culturally we're really mm. quite separate. So that was a real experience. And then after that, after getting a bit of money in, under my belt, I went off to UCL uh, January 2013, I think. Arrived during a snowstorm. It was cold, <laughs> it was dark. I just thought, what the fuck have I done? Um, <laughs> And yeah, and then just kind of went through. And so Stephen, I met with Stephen and um, that was a really cool experience. And he said, well, look, you need another supervisor. Um, I'm going to recommend this guy, Andy Bevan. Mm. And I hadn't heard of Andy to that point, which is pretty bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, I know I am, I am a podcast listener, so I know your hatred of the word luck. Um, <laughs> that's sort of like, you know, getting Andy was a stroke of good luck or good fortune, mm. whatever you want to call it. But um those two were great. They were really cool. And yeah, I just sort of went through my PhD, 
again, got was just lucky with a cohort um, or fortunate with a cohort. Yeah, uh, I got put in. Well, a, the fortune there is that you sent the email that yeah. resulted <laughs> yeah. in you getting yeah. the PhD. So, but the I, fortune was you making the active step to contact Steve Shannon. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we ended up at UCL, and I, I got uh, given a, an office on the ground floor, G seven B in, in um, UCL, and with a group of people who were diverse, uh, different different research areas, mm. but all of this kind of collective interest in going to the pub on Fridays and talking and being relaxed and they're just like an amazing group of people who have gone on to do pretty much all of the people I think who who were in that group who were in that room when I was there have gone on to do really interesting and good things Mm -hmm. and um, again just lucky with a cohort or fortunate with a cohort of people that I was there with and um, just went through and and did my PhD there Um, and then it came time to think about what next and so I went for a Leverhulme or a number of postdocs really and got rejected from most of them uh, and then went for a Leverhulme with UCL and uh, got through to the sort of faculty level because it's quite competitive there mm-hmm. uh, and missed out um, to another amazing archaeologist, Jenny French, um, which, is, which is entirely understandable. Um, <laughs> and I would just bumped into Kate Wellam, who I'd been, I'd been mm-hmm. while I was doing my PhD, I was at the pub and Mike Parker Pearson was there, as he often was, buying drinks for the PhD students. <laughs> and... Um, he said, oh, I've got this dig in Wales, do you want to come over? And, and I said, yeah, that'd be great. And when I was over there, I met Colin Richards and, mm. and Kate Wellam and all those guys and got on really well with Kate. And um, so I just, she was passing through London and, and we caught up for a drink and I said, oh, I've been rejected from this. And she said, well, what do you think about putting it in in Bournemouth? And I said, oh, can we do that? And she said, I can't see why not. So we did mm. um, and got it. And uh, I, I, went, I went back out to New Zealand because we, we had a, um, my wife and I had a baby in the meantime mm. and I was in New Zealand, I was, we were, Packing up to go because we didn't think we were going to. I was going to get it because mm. nobody gets Leverhulme's, and I think I'd sent the the last shipment of stuff back to New Zealand, <laughs> and and uh, then all of a sudden I got this letter from Leverhulme saying uh, you've got it. <laughs> I rang Kate and she couldn't believe it. She thought I was lying. I think I couldn't believe it. And then so we went out to New Zealand and then and ended up coming back here a few years ago now. And yeah. that's yeah. And then and just worked here since really. That's awesome. So there's there's an element that I think a lot of I certainly do, and I think possibly a lot of British and European archaeologists take for granted in that we're sort of in the thick of it. So a lot of the research will take place across Europe and sites of interest and things like that. And you mentioned that your early studies in archaeology were looking at distant cultures. Just to dig into that a bit more, did you mean that you were studying stuff abroad, like Australia, for example, or did you mean distances in cultures that you didn't relate to? We did, we did um, uh, a bit of both I suppose. Um, We did the usual stuff that people do I think, so we did our world prehistory course at the Mm. start, which was a sort of um, uh, a tour of the main sites in the world and I think in large part was um, an attempt to get people enthusiastic about archaeology which is entirely understandable in the the climate that we're Mm. operating in. but we also had to do things like um, you know, looking at uh, Neolithic revolutions and stuff like that and the development of farming in the Near East and places mm-hmm. like that, okay. which is what I mean by, by distant mm. things. And so you know, that's obviously an important part of world prehistory. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also looked at places like Cook Swamp and um, Papua New Guinea, which is also a centre of domestication. So we were looking at the sort of centres of domestication around the world, I suppose. Okay. Uh, and then we started through through as the years went through in our, in our degrees, we started looking more and more locally, I suppose, and looking more at the Pacific Islands, which I enjoyed a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think not not because the archaeology is any better or worse, but just because it's it's easier to connect to it, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I have to say now, you know, being in the UK and, and working on, um, I've worked in Orkney with, with um, Colin Richards and working with Mike and stuff and uh, talking about the British Neolithic and also obviously Steve and Andy and all mm-hmm. those guys at UCL, really heavily involved in understanding that the Neolithic processes in, in Europe and it's fascinating now you know so I it's just you know you change don't yeah, you yeah. but I'm much more I'm, I guess I'm closer to it. What would you say a traditional tra- trajectory for a New Zealand graduate is so whether it's a professional archaeologist or an academic do a lot of people stay in New Zealand do a lot of people go elsewhere? It's a mixed bag I think probably the majority of people go through do their undergraduate and we'll do a master's. So we do our undergraduates, as I said, th- um, three years and then with a, with a, um, 
uh, honours degree, which is a 20,000-ish word dissertation plus talk courses. And then your master's is a, is a research master's for the right. most part, although they are introducing taught master's yeah. now, I think, more and more. Um, and you have to, to, to be able to um, supervise excavations in New Zealand, you have to have um, a master's or an equivalent experience, mm. basically. And for a, for a, a student, obviously, you're not going to get that equivalent experience, so you need the master's. Right. So most people will do a master's and then they'll come out and they'll work um, in the heritage sector, very much the same as in the UK, mm. on roading projects or infrastructure projects or whatever. Um, academically, I, I think there's fewer of us. Um, there seems to be a lot of people that leave mm. uh, and go elsewhere. There are people, of course, that stay in the different universities and there's some really great um, people at, in New Zealand doing really interesting work as well. Um, but yeah, uh, that academic trajectory is, is much more varied, I yeah, think. Something else you mentioned that I think is worth picking up on, um, and we, we've touched on it a bit in the past in the podcast. You mentioned early on um, that when you were early on in your career, you went on a lot of digs and you met a lot of people and you kind of built up a network of contacts and mm. relationships that have sort of subsequently helped in your career. And the biggest one, I guess, as sort of moving forward a bit is, is meeting Kate in Wales and then that kind of facilitating a postdoc. And that element of putting yourself out there repeatedly throughout a career is something I think we've seen a few times. Yeah. And connecting with different people and meeting different people is something that kind of seems to help quite a lot in many careers in ruins. Yeah, I, I think so. Being being amenable, accessible and, and hardworking. It's often that element of making your own luck, I suppose. Yeah, and I, just, so I don't know how Andy managed this, but... Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I, I think it's the accent, I'm just exotic. <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's a weird thing. Take it back, you're very amenable. And <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I, 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 compl I completely agree. I think, you know, most of the time... Um, I mean, everybody's different. There's no silver bullet for careers. Mm. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Um, and not everybody's massively outgoing. Um, some people are really shy, mm. but I think the thing is that you just have to do what you can do. You know, as long as you, as long as you do um, the best that you can do, that's generally all people mm. can ask for. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think you know, being a person who's there's a lot to be said for just being nice. Yeah. You know, yeah. just not being a dick, basically. And I think <laughs> yeah. it goes a long way. There's a, there's a lot to be said for not being a dick. Yeah. <laughs> so. Thank you for, for running us through that. Um, and you've done, you've touched on various things that you've done and you've, you've mentioned some sites you're particularly interested in. So throughout your career, is there a bit of work or a project or a site that you're particularly proud of? Mm. That's hard because I sort of feel like my career is just getting up and running, mm. uh, if I'm honest. Um, uh, Let me add, to date. <laughs> you've got to choose a piece now and you've got to stick with it for yeah exactly it's, like it's, a, um, it's a really hard question I, I, I just don't really feel like I've done enough is there one you really enjoyed then a bit of work where you just like this has been a great project to be involved mm. in yeah I mean I, I've been involved in so many interesting I mean Wales was a great project you so know, that's the Stones of Stonehenge? Yeah, Stones of Stonehenge project which mm. was which was um, run by, by Mike and I think Josh Pollard from Southampton Kate Wellen from Bournemouth and, and uh, Colin Richards from UHI um, just looking at basically for the sources of the, of the Stonehenge bluestones and, and potentially where they were put up in Wales and that sort of thing and that was just a fun project um, to be part of and because it was removed from my own research, it was a lot of, it was really nice to, to be involved, which is quite cool. What sort of things were they undertaking or discovering as part of that project? They were mainly looking at a couple of quarry sites, Craig Rossifallon and another one called Khan Goydog, um, which were the, um, the dolerite quarries from which these bluestones that were in Stonehenge arose from. That's based on geochemical? Yeah, geochemical analysis that, that, um, that Mike's done with, with some various colleagues. Um, so looking at those at those quarry sites, but also looking in the broader landscape, they're trying to understand you know potentially where the Neolithic was in Wales that was associated with this extraction, mm. um, which is a really interesting question that I think is is still somewhat evasive, but um, well the answer is a bit evasive. But that was a really cool project. But then I was involved, you know, I was really lucky when I was back in New Zealand. I had really cool projects with um, a couple of my supervisors, Richard Walter and Chris Jackham. Um, we did some really cool digs as well, like looking at early New Zealand um, uh, prehistory or history, um, Māori history. Uh, but I don't feel like that's really my work, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. 
Um, I think probably in a weird way, just on, just sort of on the fly, I think in a weird way, I, I take pride in my work, but I don't necessarily get pride from it. Um, mm. I think maybe the thing I can think of off the top of my head that I'm most proud of is uh, not sinking completely when I got to UCL, actually, <laughs> to be honest. That's a fair point. Because yeah. it was a, you know, UCL was a massive culture shock. Mm. That was sort of like getting a third eye ripped open in your head. It, it was just, I went from a really small university mm. at Otago, and, you know, people there were really great, but UCL was just on another level. It was, you know, however many, 80, 90-odd academics or whatever, you know, heaps of PhD students, heaps of postdocs, lots of different ideas, lots of different regions and all that sort of thing. And I remember when I first got there, you know, trying to go as, I mean, we used to have one talk a week at Otago if we were lucky. Mm. And all of a sudden there was about, I don't know, it felt <laughs> like 50 a week at UCL. And I sort of tried to go, to, for the first few weeks, I tried to go to as many as I could. And then I realized that that was not going to work. Um, but actually kind of getting to the point where by, the, by kind of 18 months in or 12 months in, I suppose, where I felt like I was part of the institution and that I was able to, uh, f I, I could fit in and I, I don't know, I, I, as I say, I hadn't completely sunk. Mm -hmm. that's a, I know that's a sort of slightly weird one, but no, you know, at, a, a, at a personal level, yeah. coming from the other side of the world. Yeah, relate to that. Yeah, yeah I, honestly, yeah. I think you're coming from the other side of the world and, and starting afresh. Because I think part of the network thing that we were talking about before is that you you have a bit of history with you and you mm. carry you carry um, what people say about you and all that. So good and good and bad mm -hmm. for that matter. Um, but when you start afresh, you really do start afresh, and you've got to um, not prove to people, but you do sort of have to work on creating a new network. And it was mm. it was tough to start with, but by the time I left, you know, I was I think I had a reasonably strong network, and I knew a lot of people in the building. Um, and yeah, I don't know. In a weird way, that makes me feel proud that I was mm. able to go to. I mean, it, it is one of the top universities in, yeah. in archaeology in the world, and to not be a complete failure was quite <laughs> nice. So, just just want to double check. Are you sure not pulling together the written scheme of investigation for place project? It wasn't. <laughs> I mean, that is still a significant achievement. I'd say, <laughs> it was mainly it was mainly Johnny. I think I just some applause. Um, and of course, Derek did so much as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was. There. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So next question then, um, which might be a bit easier. Um, we, we talk about something you're, you're proud of, but is there a bit of work that you've read up on or a project that you've, you've seen taking place that you've been quite envious of in the sense that you would have loved to have been part of it? Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Um, I guess I'm a little bit of a pluralist and a, kind of a magpie when it comes to archaeology so I, I'd love to I just love reading about it and hearing what people are up to um, so there's an awful lot of things around the place um, I mean the Riverside project the Stone Age mm. Riverside project just because you hear stories from it yeah um, even yeah. if it's just about you know the alcoholic drinks they made up the Durrington <laughs> Dong all and all true. that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know that project sounds you know like a blast mm. um, it sounds like it would have been really fun to be on I mean you know, also a nightmare with, by the sounds of it. Logistically, it sounded like it was a nightmare, but uh, sounded like, I mean, you were on that, weren't you? Mm, a couple of years I did. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And that sounded like it was just, it would have been really fun. It was not, and then the discoveries on top of that, which mm. is that massive bonus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The actual archaeology something. <laughs> yeah. It's probably one of those projects you, you hear the most about, I think, this kind of the six degrees of separation in mm. terms of our generation of yeah. archaeologists. Yeah. Everyone has either been on that project or probably knows someone yeah. personally I've got this project. weird professional Venn diagram where mm. I sort of overlap with some people and not with <laughs> others. So um, a guy who I've never met and I'm sure doesn't know me at all, Hugo Anderson Weimark. Oh, yeah. And you guys probably know him. Also, he, I know so many people that he knows, <laughs> but we've never met. <laughs> I have no idea. I wouldn't even be able to tell you what Hugo looks like walking down the street, but I've heard a lot about him. There's some great stories about the uh, costumes he used to create <laughs> for the parties. But I'll tell you that off air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it just sounds like a fun... I mean, HMS remember when we were in... When we were in, um, in Wales, I remember I did some particularly hard digging one day and I got in the car with Mike... Um, and we drove back to the house uh, in Wales, and uh, he was like, fancy a dong? And, and his kind of amazing Mike Park personality. And he makes this Darrington dong, which I'd never had before, and I had no idea what they were. It was my first year in Wales. Uh, and Karen, his wife, used to make them, and she'd make them kind of nice. But Mike has got a slightly heavier hand when it comes to the booze. And um, I, I remember just, and so he, put, he made this dong, and it's just, I mean, it tasted gross. Was it his gin... 
Campari. Ginger beer? Ginger beer. Negroni, mate. Oh, no, yeah. it's like a Negroni, it's but like it's got me. something else in it. Yeah. Like something. I don't know, but it, it was brutal. And, 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 I mean, it didn't matter what was in it because he just put so much in everything. You know, it was like when you mix colours and it all comes out brown. It was like that. And, and it was just, it was just booze. And uh, I remember, so he poured me that, just drinking that. And I was thinking, Jesus, this is a bit rough. And then I, I had a couple, and he also drinks quick, you know, really fast. <laughs> so I had a couple really fast. And I remember everybody else arriving back for showers. And, you know, it must have only been half an hour, 40 minutes. And just already the room was starting to go. And it was a really rough night. But, you know, it sounds like that happened all the time on the Riverside Project. It would yeah. be quite fun. I, I guess the only other place, I, the thing I, off the top of my head, some of the work in the 60s and 70s in New Zealand would have been mm. so much fun to be on. Because mm. a lot of that, a lot of it's been published and it's written the fantastic publications. But there's a few sites, particularly in the North Island, where people worked on them and they're really early in the process of archaeology in New Zealand and the people that you you hear about who are, who went through there are all now <clears throat> um, you know, pretty amazing, you know, like high up in the, in the sort of, um, in the ladder of New Zealand archaeology, I suppose. And it just would have been a lot of fun to see those sites, I think, and, mm. and understand. And some of them, um, publications are still pending and stuff from okay. quite a while, while ago. So I'd quite like to have seen, you know, if I could go back and and see that, it'll be quite cool. Fair enough. Um, I was going back to the Stonehenge Riverside project, it's got to be the dream for everyone to get to that point in your career where you can pull together such an amazing group of people <laughs> and have such an amazing amount of funding to support such a vast amount of research and investigation yeah. and then create your own alcoholic beverage. I know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All of the boxes ticked yeah, in one yeah. hit. Yeah. yeah, and it was planned, I think it was planned in a pub. Yeah, mm. on a, well, Colin, um, Colin was on last week's episode, so right. um, yeah, he talks about that a bit. I'm sure you knew that because you've been listening to it. Oh, of course, that's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> Colin, I've worked with Colin. I worked with Colin actually up in, in Orkney, and um, we went and saw. I mean, the, another amazing site. We went and saw um, the Ness of Brogda, which ah. is just you know, mm. looking at that. I mean, it's one of those sites that, as an archaeologist, I looked at and I just thought, ah, nope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no way, there's no way I can do this. And then we actually went up to. Did we go up to Ralsey or something like that? And Bradford were digging there, um, and they had this site that was like a Viking site on top of a Bronze Age site on top of a, a, a Neolithic site or something like that. Mm. And it was being eroded, and so the face was sort of a 45 degrees. And then that was another one. And again, Colin took us there when we were up in the Orkneys. And I just remember looking at that and just thinking, I, there's no way. I'm touching it. <laughs> this is way beyond my capabilities. <laughs> but we, in, for, uh, for Colin's dig, we were up at Smearcoy, and it was amazing because Colin starts work at 9.30 and finishes at 2.30 to get some fish and chips. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. So yeah, I'd, any project that Colin's involved with, I'd happily, <laughs> I'd happily be involved with as well. Okay, so the final question of the interview is, um, Derek and I have made and perfected a working time machine. Yeah. All participants in the podcast uh, get a free return ticket. Uh, we've only had one not accepted so far. Although we sort of talked to him. Yeah, it, talk, yeah. yeah. Um, but... <laughs> As a participant, we'd love you to go and investigate something that you're interested in. So where would you like to go and what would you like to see? Uh, yeah, okay, good question. Has anybody asked if they can just go back and win the lottery? Uh, you can't interfere, so you're invisible, yeah. you can't interfere, oh, okay, interact, right. you, you're yeah, purely we, observing. We had to put that proviso in quite early on, Yeah, we? yeah. Oh, okay. problems with paradoxes and yeah. issues. Oh, yeah, I see, yeah. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could have changed British history. Um, oh. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, I kind of, this is easy for me. I'd um, I would go back because you can also you can zip in and out, can you? Or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. 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 I, movement's pretty easy, and then you just can come back like five seconds after you left. So. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. I'd uh, for me it would be uh, I'd be in East Polynesia somewhere. Um, can I have a helicopter so I can fly around? And you can levitate. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 there's a lot Fantastic. of these, like it's like craft rules. You yeah, can float yeah, yeah. around. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. I'd be in East Polynesia somewhere at about around 1300 AD, 700 years ago, watching a group of people get, uh, you know, provisions and organise themselves for this journey across what 3,000 miles of blue ocean mm. to try and find New Zealand uh, and settle it. <laughs> I'd, I'd be. <clears throat> I'd love to see how. Must have been an incredibly um, persuasive and amazing individual or set of individuals who did that. Love to see that, and then just kind of be on the boat with them as they find New Zealand and watch watch what they do in this place. That's, you know, it's not tropical like where they came from. So what? Did, how did they? 
how did they do that? So if I could just hang out with them for, you know, for while they're getting ready, the journey, uh, and then maybe, I don't know, could I have 50 years or something? I mean, that's compared to some participants, that's quite a short space of time. Yeah. So yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about it. We had someone do pre-comet. Um, yeah, watching the dinosaurs. Then go through the air, the demise of the dinosaurs, go through a... Some time geological ages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, 50 years is small fry. Exactly, yeah. Oh, we'll take 100 then. Yeah, you can have 100, no problem. Following on, actually, from something that popped up in last week's podcast, I'm kind of intrigued to see where this goes. So you've been back in time, you've seen this event, or this series of events that do factor into your own research. So you've come back, you're back at Bournemouth after your time travel adventure, you've seen all of this. What's the next career move? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good <laughs> one. Yeah, like because because right, I definitely know there's a site there. Yeah, you go there and it's eroded. <laughs> oh man, um, yeah. No. So do you sit on that knowledge and use that to build a fantastic career, or do you just publish it as a monograph and then go and research a completely different part of the world because you know that? Done. Polynesia. Uh, yeah, yeah. The mystery is part of the process, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, no, I'd, I'd um. I'd ruthlessly use it to advance my own career. <laughs> I definitely, I, I, well, I mean, you know, you could, I could only, I could, you'd only be able to see so much, and maybe in a couple of areas. So yeah, I'd, yeah. Um, I'd, yeah, definitely publish that and still work on it. Um, but then maybe I could look at what happened after they did after that hundred years. It's so still got four hundred years. Of, you wouldn't want to reverse engineer some archaeological theory to make it interpretations fit what you'd see. Yeah, and you could be like, what well, settlement of New Zealand completed it, mate. Yeah, right. done. Yeah, and then we like yeah. drop mic, go off to this thing else. Yeah. <laughs> you're working, what? what? No. Yeah. I mean, there's the, there's the problem, isn't it, with incomplete records and stuff, is that you've got mm. this knowledge that you that nobody else has, and so mm. you, um, you have to try and convince people that it's true, and they might, well, but the... You spend a lifetime doesn't. finding evidence to support what you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could be really frustrating yeah, yeah. <laughs> at conferences. Look, guys, I know it. I can't tell you how, yeah. but I do. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Andy, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Um, no worries. And uh, you're leaving us soon, aren't you? I am, yeah. Oh. yeah. How long have we got left? A couple of months? Oh, a few months, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. I'm, I've got to go back to the, the mother country. So to do the sequel to this episode, we're going to have to fly to New Zealand. Yes. Which brings us to our Patreon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue, nice segue. <laughs> we have a Patreon account. Yes. And if you'd like to pay for us to go to New Zealand to interview Andy further, <laughs> please visit Patreon and type in Career in Ruins podcast. Yeah, if you want to hear more from Dr. Andrew Brain, please fund our adventures. <laughs> <laughs> With those two idiots alongside. Yeah. And also like and subscribe. Yes. And send us your Monutrump. Yeah, we want to keep doing this. A few more weeks of Monutrump would be excellent. And the more the merrier. A few more weeks makes it sound like you're already a bit bored of it. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, My finest creation. (laughs) All right. Cheers, guys. Brilliant. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Career in Ruins podcast. Please make sure that you subscribe to our downloads on whatever whatever system you receive your podcast from. Make sure you comment. Do send us any questions or thoughts you have on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We also have a Facebook page. And uh, we'll, we'll look to try and to reply to as many questions as we can, hopefully in the podcast as well. And sound production on this episode has been done by Guy from BucketofSound.com.